I am so glad you could join us. I'm your host, Mo Gaudat. This podcast is nothing more than a conversation between two good friends sharing inspiring life stories and perhaps some nuggets of wisdom along the way. This is your invitation to slow down with us. Welcome to Slow Mo. Welcome back. My guest today uh, brings a topic that I had wanted to discuss on Slow Mo for a very, very long time. Michelle Damasi is a PhD holder in philosophy. She lived in five countries. She is a prominent vice president of a U.S. corporation, but that's not what we're going to talk about here today. She is a very, very big advocate for women's rights, uh, refugee rights. Uh, she published multiple academic papers on the topics of women's rights and, uh, and refugee rights and uh, on Afghanistan. And recently she released her book, Hope, Solidarity and Death on the Australian border, basically Christmas uh, Island and Asylum Seekers. She actually gives the royalty of this book away to charity, and her objective really is to raise awareness around some of the Australian asylum seeker policies. But that's just one thing in her massive, massive effort to actually try and understand what an asylum seeker, what a refugee has to go through uh, so that we can somehow make it a little more human, if you want, uh, in dealing with those situations. She's currently working on a research uh, that focuses on understanding the things that matter most to a refugee and so accordingly can help them feel welcomed and settled as quickly as possible, a topic that I definitely want to cover. So this is a conversation that I think each and every one of us who is complaining about being stuck in traffic or about being in a bad job or at risk of losing your job, this is a topic that I wanted to bring to all of us so that we can remember there are those that lose loved ones, roots, homes, income, jobs, all at the same time and they're not even welcome where they go to. They live in appalling conditions. They are just like you and me. Yesterday, they were in a normal life, and then something happened. I think this is a story that each and every one of us uh, should think about, and I think Michelle Damasi is probably one of the best to bring it to our attention. Michelle, thank you. Thank you for having so me today. So much for joining me. It's a topic that I don't know how to say this in any other way. It really hurts my heart. It hurts my heart for many reasons. I, I you know, of course, I don't deal with, with human suffering. I don't deal well with human suffering in general. Uh, but it's also the reality that I myself, being Egyptian-born, throughout my life until today, regardless of what I've achieved in life, what I attempt to contribute, what I stand for, whatever it is, uh, I still carry the burden of my green passport. It's quite interesting that, and I say this with, of course, a ton of respect, that a criminal in a Western country is much more welcome to most other countries in the world than a Nobel Prize winner in, a, in an Eastern country, if you want. Mm-hmm. And I think this it gets exaggerated to its extreme, in the case of being becoming a refugee. So you've worked in Afghanistan, you've worked on the Australian border, uh, you worked in Singapore. Worked in Singapore, I've been in Saudi Arabia, I've been in a few different places over the years, <laughs> yeah. First of all, let's maybe start by asking you how, how did you end up in that place? Your PhD was philosophy? Yeah, so I was a, a, a doctorate of philosophy um, with my focus area being anthropology. So obviously I've always been interested in, uh, you know, the study of cultures and human interaction. But yeah, I started that in 2008 at uh, a time when there were not so many people uh, living on Christmas Island. So my journey began on Christmas Island. Yeah, and well, I found out that there is a place called Christmas Island yeah. from your book. <laughs> what <laughs> a nice name. Is it a happy place? Well, not 
not so happy. Oh, it depends who you talk to, actually, um, in all fairness, to the people that live there. And so I guess probably a bit of geography 101 to, to help everyone understand where Christmas Island is. It is part of Australia. It is 350 kilometres south of Java, Indonesia. Um, it was discovered on Christmas Day, hence the name Christmas Island. Um, and there's about 1,300 people that live there, um, give or take, if you're not including people that have been held in immigration detention. And the island, um, originally it belonged to the Straits Colonies, so it was part of the UK, um, the British colonies, and Singapore was its capital for some time, and then it was handed over to Australia. And so the demographic on Christmas Island is mainly people who identify with being Chinese and Malay and Caucasian. Um, and that's obviously because of people that migrated there to work in the, the phosphate mine. And so the, his, the history of Christmas Island is it was a place of migration. People went there for a better life. Um, unfortunately, people's experiences that went there were not so great. You know, many people died working in the phosphate mine. There were ill, Ill treatment and also on the island itself, up until the early 1980s, even if people were Asian, they were not allowed to become an Australian citizen, even though it was part of Australia. Mm. Um, so the island has a, a history of apartheid. And it's interesting that it later became a place that started to warehouse refugees that were on their way to Australia. Warehouse, that's not a nice term. No, it's not a very nice term. Um, so... To give some context around that, who were these refugees? How did they get to Australia? Um, so let's start with where people were coming from. I would say back in the early 2000s, late 1990s, when people were fleeing the first regime of um, the Taliban and under Saddam Hussein, people would fly from, say, Afghanistan or from Pakistan um, and then make their way to Malaysia. And from Malaysia, they would then uh, be smuggled down to Indonesia. And then from Indonesia, they would get on a boat, not dissimilar to the one that's on the front cover of my book, and uh, head for Christmas Island because Christmas Island was part of Australia or is part of Australia. And the goal was that once they got there that they would claim asylum as Australia is a signatory to the 1951 uh, UN Refugee Convention. So that's where people were going and then they were being moved on to the mainland and mainland Australia and people were putting in asylum claims. How long would this trip typically take? Uh, we're talking from anywhere from, uh, you know, a month or two, a couple of months. It really depended. From, from their homeland. So if you leave yeah. Iraq, you're in on Christmas Island in two months. Yeah. Yeah, some people moved even quicker than that. Mm -hmm. And, you know, over time it became a bit more sophisticated with yeah. mobiles and social networks and whatnot. But back in the early, you know, 2000s, it wasn't a, a, a such a sophisticated operation. Um, but, yeah, so less than, you know, that. It depended also what happened to people. People, when they got to Indonesia, sometimes, you know, they were at the hands of people smugglers. So, you know, they might have run out of money or they've been robbed or whatnot, and then they would get stuck there and they might wait for family members to send the money again to try the journey. Um, so, you know, this was it's a really difficult time. And I think, you know, you, you began the interview asking about the human story, well, it becomes a, a you know an important question. Why would someone risk their life to get exactly. on a boat? Yeah. And also with the knowledge that many people have drowned at sea. When I spoke to asylum seekers over the years, people always said to me, I'd rather die trying than not try at all. I'd rather risk my life um, and know that I actually tried to make my way to freedom than not have tried at all. Because of the hardships back home, yep. where to no choice on their side, one is born in Iraq or one is born in Afghanistan and yeah. so on, those people would rather die than live this life. Mm. And they would take those risks. They would risk all the money that they've ever earned. They would get on a boat in the middle of the Indian Ocean, yep. Pacific Ocean. And that's just because it's not worth living otherwise. Absolutely. And, you know, we don't wish that upon anyone to have to make that decision. And I always recall the story of one young guy who was, you know, in his teens. And he said to me, Michelle, I always remember on my boat journey from, from Indonesia to Christmas Island, 
I, you know, there was no room on the boat. Like I literally, some of us had to almost sit on the motor of the boat. And at night, you know, it was so dark because you're in the middle of the sea, but all I could see was the stars and it was so beautiful, the stars. And I would look at the stars and I would say to, to God, I hand this over to you. I hand this over to you. There is nothing left I can do. And we always talk about, you know, the act of surrendering and whatnot. You know, he said, I completely surrendered. I handed this over to God. And their boat became in distress and ended up having to be tied up to an oil rig out in the middle of the sea. And then the Australian Navy rescued them. And that young man, he went on to Australia and he's done very well and he now has done his master's in law and, you know, he's contributing to Australian society. And and I think, you know, all the rhetoric that's around, you know, refugees are here to steal our jobs, take our money, whatever, resources, you know, it's it's just a so, really... So, so can, yeah. can I ask, can I ask, before we talk about the, the idea of refugees, can we talk a little bit about this whole international borders thing? Mm, like, yeah. why is it that someone like me, born and raised in Egypt, is not allowed to go and contribute to an American economy or to a British economy or to an Australian economy? How did this start? Like, when was the point where suddenly mobility across the land ceased? People have always moved. Like, people have always moved, but... You- this is founded in racism, really. There's no other way. And a fear of the, you know, inverted commas, other has always been the, the response. And, you know, it's sad to say it, and, but I will say it as much as, you know, what is happening, for example, in somewhere like Ukraine at the moment is absolutely. just absolutely disgraceful and people are dying every day. But you have to look at where support has come in right now. I've seen a lot of organisations, a lot of NGOs, a lot of government pouring money into, you know, places surrounding Ukraine to support refugees there. You know, you have to ask yourself why is that the case when people at the moment are starving to death in Afghanistan, you know, 97% of the population is now facing poverty. Six million people are about to face famine. Why is that the case? One of two uh, reasons, if I don't have any fears to say what's on Mm. my mind, either, of course, there is a political agenda, Mm -hmm. right, Uh, which basically means money, weapons, uh, the whole story of humanity in general, or, of course, because they're white. And And Christian. And Christian, yeah. Yeah. And so accordingly, it's more, but, you know, there is, it's anchored a little bit in human nature as Mm. well. It's like, they're like me. Well, yeah. So so, so I might as well. Well, and that point is a very important one yes they are like me and that isn't everyone (laughs) and it's but it's also on a a scale right so yes they might be like me when I see someone and okay they may be from a similar background or religion or you know the color of their skin but when people get to meet refugees and they actually understand why they've fled what their needs are what their goals in life are they can actually understand this person is actually quite the same as me. I might be a father with a son who would want the same things, a mother with a child, brother or sister. We all want the same things, right? And it's until you people have those conversations and understand, you know, everyone's needs are very similar. Everyone's goals are very similar and what they want. But I think, you know, there's so much rhetoric about asylum seekers and refugees that it stops that conversation, people being able to meet the, you know, so-called refugee other. Um, and I think that's always been really important for me in my work is how can I share that story, that that human story? How are we all the same? We want the same things. And, you know, I think that visuals always, visuals and human stories, and, and at the start of my book, you know, Khalid Hosseini, who, who wrote The Kite Runner, writes about, you know, when we remember uh, back, you know, during the European refugee crisis when that young Kurdish boy washed up on the shores, you know, that visual of that little boy's body on the shores, you know, overnight millions of dollars were being raised to help. Why? Because people saw that as, oh, you know, that's a little boy, that could be like my own child, my own son. And that's where people started to have empathy. Yeah. It is quite interesting when you say, people like me, because in reality, at the end of the day, everyone is like me. 
Mm. Right. I mean, it depends on how accurate you just open the aperture of yeah. your vision, basically. Absolutely. If, you, if, you, yeah. if you're able to to see that everyone is a father, everyone is a, is a son, is a sister, is a mother, there is that in them that's like you. If you see that everyone, as I, as I wrote in Scary Smart, wants to be happy and has the compassion to make those who lo- they love happy and want to, to love and be loved, then we're all the same, interestingly. It's understandable in my mind that a country will say, but hey, I care about my citizens, so... I will want to make sure that the people that come to my country contribute to my country, preserve my culture, respect my values. But shouldn't that be the measure, right? Like if if someone is showing that they can contribute, they're aligning, they're bringing something to your country, but they have a different skin color or they have a different background or God forbid they were born in a different religion or a different Mm. body or a different political border, Shouldn't humanity start to say, hey, but they're bringing something amazing to my country, which, you know. Mm. Correct. And I 110% agree with what you're saying. But it also opens up another conversation as well. Do they need to come and be purely there to contribute? It's something I've sort of thought a bit about. Oh, that's such a beautiful way of looking you at know, it. Or is it, is it by virtue duty? of... Yeah, human ethics and human rights that this person needs my help and they have turned up here and I should welcome them. Open arms. I think that's so beautiful, so pure. Right? Well, it's a, a concept of hospitality, yes? Yeah, yeah. But, but, that, but that's, you know, that's, I mean, which politician will think that way, okay? <laughs> I, th- I think the question really is how effective are, because I know that for certain yeah. from my upbringing. Yeah that if you go through a difficult upbringing and then you're given opportunity, you try harder. By definition, if a refugee doesn't have to struggle with the issues of just surviving, they will go further. They will try to do better. Yeah, and you know, I always look back at times when I was um, in Australia and what would happen in Australia once people do become a refugee, they're allowed to take welfare payments from the government and, and... talking to a group of Afghan men and they were like, we can't take that money. That's haram. You know, this is for people who who it's actually for that need it. We don't need it. Like yeah. <laughs> we're just here to, you know, we just want to work and contribute. And they said, we can't take this. It's haram, you know. So, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's quite interesting when you think about that. I mean, you, you skipped my question, interestingly. Yeah. So I said, I asked you, how did you start all of this? And, <laughs> yeah. and, and, we and, we and digressed. You, yeah, yeah. yeah we, I have a tendency to do that. We mentioned Christmas Island yeah. and then it was refugees from there. No yeah. typical of givers who... Yeah or dedicate their life to a good cause, yeah. is yeah. they rarely ever talk about uh, yeah. themselves. They talk about the cause. Yeah, yeah. But I'm still curious. Yeah, about me, yeah. sure. So, so, so you you went to Christmas Island. Yep. For, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. So there's a backstory to that. So my mother was living there. When my parents divorced, my mother decided that she would go to Christmas Island Obviously, my father was not that awful that she tried to find the most remote place. <laughs> no. um, she had a friend there and, and my mother was, you know, ready to start a, her life again after t- a 22-year marriage. And with, with, with the other 1,299 <laughs> people. And yeah. met my stepfather there and fell in love with him and have a very happy life now. So, you know, you can find love anywhere, right? And so I went there for the holidays to visit my mum. And at that time, there were no refugees. You know, some years had passed and the boats had stopped coming during due to political uh, you know policies in place and th- what they were doing then was building a huge detention center mm. which was being coined Australia's Guantanamo Bay Oh, okay. Yeah. So CCTV cameras, it was to fit, you know, up to 2,000 people. It was to have women and children were to be put in there. Um, there were baby change tables. It had electric fences. And they knew people were probably going to try to self-harm and potentially commit suicide in there, that the hooks on the backs of the doors would literally go flat. So if people tried to push, put pressure and, and, and commit suicide, they, you know, this would prevent. So they knew what was going to happen. They knew that the detention impacts the psychological well-being of, of asylum seekers. So my curiosity started there. I was like, okay, well, you know, I know about human rights and refugee rights. I'm 
uh, still doing my bachelor's, but I can see this is innately wrong. Um, so it began, began there, Mo. I just started to ask a lot of questions like, what is, what is happening here? Um, why would we lock these people up? What did they do wrong? And then over time, it, it turned into a, into a PhD topic. Yeah. And so you made that your PhD. Yeah, yeah, I did. Dissertation, so, yeah. Yeah, so the plan was when I went there, uh, I would write a historical thesis. There'd been no boats, but I was interested to know what had happened in the past. And um, this by this stage, it's 2008 for, for context. And we'd had a change of government in Australia. The new uh, Kevin Rudd government had said, okay, we don't um, incarcerate children anymore. No one's going to be, no kids are going to be in, in detention. Um, there's these new detention values. We have a much more humane treatment. Um, then, so I went, when I was there, there weren't, like I said, no refugees. But within three weeks of my arrival, boats started coming. Mm. And I was like, okay, this is interesting. <laughs> oh, okay, this is probably not going to be a historical thesis anymore. It's now about the present and me actually witnessing boats arriving. Um, and then I published a piece on uh, the so-called new detention values. I was arguing that children were still being locked up because there was a small uh, camp on the island and it faced a public playground and the kids that were in the detention centre could not go to that playground. There was still, you know, it was locked. There were security guards. And I said, well, I'm sorry, but children are still being locked up. Um, that was published. And then the immigration department, you know, they wanted a lot of transparency about what was happening. And they said, look, why don't you come into the detention centre um, and meet with people and see what the conditions were uh, and speak speak to, to refugees. So I had not spent any time with uh, people from Afghanistan at that point uh, who were the majority of people. And, you know, I went in there and I said, look, is there anything I can do for you? <laughs> like, like, I don't know what to do here, but <laughs> can I, like, if there's anything I can do to help? Um, and I guess that's like, you know, that's the innocence, right, behind like just trying to help people, you know. I had no idea what I was doing really and um, other than trying to just welcome people. And they said, we'd like to learn about uh, Australia. Mm -hmm. And I said, okay, well, I will come here for two hours every week and I will teach you about Melbourne and Sydney and these places. And, and that's what I did. And when I talked back to people that were granted refugee status many years later, they said, you know, those classes – they gave us so much hope. It was for two hours I could think, oh, what would my life be like when I'm living in Sydney? You know, and they said that actually kept us motivated. It actually gave us hope about our futures. And then over time I decided um, that, you know, things were starting to escalate. There were more people in detention um, that I set up an NGO called Asylum Seekers Christmas Island. And I was like, okay, I need to figure out another way to help these people here. I had heard of stories in the earlier years when people were had been in immigration detention, both in Australia and in the Pacific Island, when Australia was moving people to places like Nauru, and that letter writing was one form of mechanism. So I was like, okay, if I can help people in mainland Australia, because there's people that care, be matched up with these people on Christmas Island, mm -hmm. they could offer some support. And so within a few months, I had like over a thousand Australians like contacting me saying, I want to write to someone I want to help. And people, people started doing that and they would send them phone cards, send them care packages and, and things like that. And people built very, very close relationships. Um, and that was just a one way I could deal with the tyranny of distance that people couldn't go visit them in the detention center. But I wanted to establish some form of human connection. And one story that always sticks out in my mind about that was some years later, maybe a couple of years later, I was still doing this work and this lady emailed me and she said, oh, the, there was actually a small group of Sri Lankans that were coming when there were some uprisings back in Sri Lanka in 2008 and nine. And she said, the gentleman that I'm writing to, he has been refused and he needs a migration lawyer now to put in an appeal. And I'm really sorry, but right now I, I can't quite help him because my son has 
been diagnosed with brain cancer, a tumour, and he only has three weeks to live. And she said, look, do you think you could take it? We said, we said, oh, my God, like, let us deal with this. We will find him a new migration lawyer and please just be with your son. So she, that happened, whatnot. That person was granted asylum. And a year later I received this email from this woman and she said, I just want to tell you, you know, when my son knew how much I loved working with refugees, like helping refugees, how important this was to me. Um, in his will, he left everything to this Sri Lankan man, um, his apartment, everything, because he wanted him to be set up for life once he came to Australia. Oh, my God. Yeah, yeah. So it was like these stories, Mo, that, you know, you just hear and and – you know, these are everyday people doing something, you know, they're everyday people. So th there are still humans out there. Oh, yes. Yeah, apparently so. <laughs> I mean, when, when you said that she took the time to email during this, I was like, that in itself is just super human. Yeah. Like, this is wonderful. She said, and oh, look, I've just got to let you know, I'm so sorry. I can't, you know. Wow. And I was, you know. You, you Australians are cool. <laughs> I like you. Yeah. Well, we're just here to get a job done. <laughs> you know, there's no, you know, BS about Australians. Uh, we're just like, we see things black and white. We're like, okay, well, if someone needs help, we've got to help. So, oh, yeah. wow. So how is it? I mean, let's stick with those human stories. Yeah, so yeah. you've been on the front line. Yeah, yeah. Very often. Yeah. Tell me if I landed in a detention center mm. now. Okay, or on a, one of those refugee camps or whatever. Tell me my experience. Tell me how I feel. Tell me what's going wrong. Tell mm. me what's going right. Yeah. You know, I'm supposed to be celebrating now because at least I'm far away from my war or whatever that is. And I have a tent to sleep in. Mm. Is that true at all? Well, yes and no. So I would say it goes in waves. <laughs> not dissimilar to the seas and, you know, and the ebb and flow of what people, boats people get on. And people, they get off the boats. I've seen people's faces when they get off the boat and are on Australian soil. And, you know, you, that look of sheer, like, joy and relief that I've made it to Australia, I survived at sea, um, is the first part. And I would say, you know, in those first few weeks, months, whatnot, depending on what government is in power and who's doing the processing, people are fairly high-spirited. But as time goes on, and what we did see in Australia was long-term detention, where people were, we're talking years in immigration detention, and people's hopes and dreams completely went downhill. You know, I saw very, very, very sick and unwell people in immigration detention, and you think, okay, well, if, yeah, if we talk about the contribution conversation, how, can, how do you expect these people to, contrib to contribute now when you've destroyed their lives? Mm -hmm. And I saw that suffering, you know, I saw it so much to the point that, yeah, people actually committed suicide. People were self-harming. People were stitching their lips up, you know. It's, it's very hard for people to understand that that is the level people will go to. They have lost all hope. And they have lost so much, you know, and, and you write about control and, you know, when people feel the need to control a situation, you know, it's like I've got no control. The only control I have right now is what I can do over my body because everything else has been taken away. And you said they last years in immigration. Oh, yeah, there's people that were five years in immigration detention. Why is there a difference between one person yeah, and the other? Yeah, so sometimes it can be someone's claim is refused and then they do another assessment, then it's appealed and then it ends up in the legal system. There was backlogs of people being processed. So, yeah, this is, you know, it's a very... And the conditions of living there. So how yeah, would my life look and look, like? it really varied, right? It it varied where people were and the, if a detention centre had reached maximum capacity. So in 2011, when I was on Christmas Island, it was when there were riots in detention and I witnessed what was happening with those riots and people had been in detention for several years and they were really frustrated. The detention centres were so full, you know, this was an island with about 1,300 people. The numbers were getting up to two and a half 3,000 asylum seekers now on a tiny island that's in the middle of the Indian Ocean. You know, it's a pressure cooker for a lot of problems. And people said, okay, well, 
we're sleeping on on the floor, we're sleeping in army canvas beds and things like that. We've had enough and people started uprising. Now, look, some people, you know, if I was to play devil's advocate would say, oh, well, you know, they should be happy. They, they're in Australia now. Like, why are they complaining about the conditions? <laughs> you know, because I've heard that argument. And it's like, well, but that's not how we treat people, right? <laughs> I mean, would you be happy about those oh. conditions, right? If you if we sent you to America, oh, like, you know. You know you, yeah. and, put, and then I think the next situation as well was putting people on offshore islands. So places like Papua New Guinea, Manus Island, you know, Nauru. These are third world countries, and Australia decided that we can, again, warehouse refugees here. We will pay these countries to have them sit, these refugees sit here, and, and they can deal with this issue. What happened with that? Well, you know, in the early 2000s, and I have friends even that, that I later, you know, became forged friendships with, told me, well, the situation was so bad we put our hands up and said, let's go back to Afghanistan because this is so bad. It's actually worse here than it is in, in Afghanistan right now. So that gives you a pretty good indication of what the situation can be like in some of the camps. So friendships. Mm, yeah. Tell me about a few Yeah, I think, you know, over time and that's again like you building, breaking down those barriers and whatnot. Um I have a lot of really good friends who have been refugees that I've met while they were on Christmas Island and they're so special to me, those friendships. And people always said, like, why would you want to work with all this, like, misery and this awful situation? Why would you like to work? Yeah, they said, why would you do this? And I said, why would I not? And for me it was always, and I do not want to glorify the situation of refugees by any means, but if I was to say, if I wanted to understand the story of the human spirit, the story of resilience, I have seen that through refugees and, you know, and those friendships and what people are actually capable of in their darkest hour, you know. And I think for me it was always, you know, I, I was telling you before we spoke, you know, I've spent some time in, in Quetta, Pakistan, where there's a lot of refugees and in Afghanistan and when I went back to Quetta just last year, it was a really good reminder for me of what I still loved about when I'd go to Afghanistan. What was that? It was always that in amongst all the suffering and the misery and tragedy that people had so much love and compassion for one another and for me. And I was always treated like a guest. And I was like, you know, it's like that love and compassion supersedes everything in this situation, despite the suffering and for me, that really was always like, you know, the essence of what it means to be a human being. So I, I know that from my, you know, my Eastern experiences in general, you know, here, the Middle East, in Africa. In yeah, lots and of, this the, concepts of hospitality. It, it, you yeah. know, you, you'd go to the poorest areas yeah. and someone who really has nothing at all, mm. nothing, they would invite you in and share whatever, whatever it they is have. Yep. It, they have with you. Yeah. Where does that come from? Like if, you know, if if you have a billion dollars, it seems you share very little with, mm. of it with others. But if you have a dollar, you yeah. cut it in half and you yeah. give half to someone who obviously doesn't need it. Yeah. And I think it's because it, it's about ethics, I would say. It's like, you know, we know that if someone, I remember I was in uh, Uzbekistan last year on the, the border there of Uzbekistan and Afghanistan in a city called Tumez. And great things happened with, I met some Afghans there and whatnot, and um, who ended up cooking me some amazing Afghan food and this whole chain of events. But, you know, they said like a, a guest, a, you know, a guest is always a friend of God. You know, we love guests. Mm -hmm. A guest is a friend of God. And, you know, that is why, you know, you welcome people. And I thought, you know, this is a, a really good way of looking at that. So, yeah. I think it's also because when, when you suffer yourself, yeah. you understand what it is to be treated well. So you treat others yeah. well, you know, you, you sort of give people what you have not been given, which is I find beautiful mm. in places like you know africa middle east and so on it's just you know even if i don't 
get treated that way. I'll treat others that way because at least they'll feel happy. And I think that's an amazing thing. Absolutely. I mean, even just on the way here today in the taxi and I was talking with the driver and, um, and then he turned out to be in, from Peshawar and, you know, there's a lot of Afghan refugees there. And I was like, oh, how are you, know, you guys dealing with this situation with so many Afghans coming across the board? He said, you know, it's like we're all the same, we're all the same. And then as I left, you know, he, was, he said, if you're coming to Peshawar, please, you know, I want to show you the hospitality of my, 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 my country. It's my duty, you know. And as I got out of the car, he's like, I pray for your interview today. <laughs> and I was like, thanks. And I was like, and I was like you know, and he probably will. He probably did, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. you're doing very well as, as a result, yeah. <laughs> thanks, Mohammed Hussain. Um, yeah. Uber number, no, um, so. Yeah, yeah, you know, and it's just like I and people it's genuine. It really is. I mean, it is it is quite something that yeah. I have uh, I have felt that my whole life to be honest. You, you know, you 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 go to to the poorest places, you yeah. get the best smiles, yeah, the yeah. nicest uh, treatment, the yeah. nicest food, and and people truly and honestly will want to take you around and show you yeah. the place and they'll be so proud of it. Which in a Western context, well, if someone wants to show me around, like surely they're going to do something. They're going to mug me. <laughs> they're going to rob me. They've got an agenda. <laughs> did, you, did, you, did you feel safe in those places? Uh, look. I mean, Western woman. Yeah, okay. And traveling by myself. And I was, you know, when I first landed in Kabul in, in 2010, you know, I uh, was, what, I was in my late 20s then. And I always remember like that walk from Kabul airport it's they have a parking a a parking b a parking c parking a is for senior government officials whatnot parking b is for all the un workers red cross parking c is for the uh, you know average person yeah Yeah. and and parking c is maybe like a kilometer (laughs) so walk and apparently i was to go to parking c and i always just remember like that walk and you know, someone, of course, me being a little bit naive is like, you know, I'm going to take your bag, da da da, I'm going to help you. Um, and I walked through and I was like, got there. And, you know, there were just hundreds of Afghans and everyone. And here's me. And I was like, my mother could see me right now. <laughs> She'd be having a breakdown. But so to answer your question, did I feel unsafe? I would say I always felt on high alert in Afghanistan was always on high alert because it was it was not the people that I was concerned about. It was more about the frequency of, you know, things like bomb attacks or kidnappings. Kidnappings had become, you know, quite common, unfortunately, um, in the later years before pre, pre-new government. Um, but my advice was, was always to listen to local advice. Mm. Yeah, so whatever people, you know, the people that were close to me that I was staying with, you know, who were like there to guard me for their life, you know, as we said, I was a guest and I was there to try and help. I just, you know, if they said, look, Miss Michelle, I don't suggest you go there today or, you know, please don't. And I'll just, okay, there's no questions. Mm-hmm. I trust you. I have so much trust in you. But And you still went. So even though there yeah. were dangers and threats. Yeah, and what, what, I, what's driving? You? Yeah, you know, you little th- nutcase. Yeah, which I'm being a little bit <laughs> mad. Um, you know, <laughs> you know, there was a point. It was in. It was during Ramadan back in 2016, I think. And that trip, you know, I'd been several times, and I always remember that trip, like. Yeah, the kidnappings had gotten a lot bad. The, the security had gotten really bad. Like, you know, I really couldn't go many places other than the house and friends I was staying with to the office. And, you know, I think I went out once. And I thought to myself, I remember like laying there in bed and, you know, I'd always used to sleep fully, like fully dressed, <laughs> you know, long sleeve, long trousers, because I was like, if there's going to be a bomb attack tonight, I can need to get out of here really quick. And, and it was middle of summer and there was no AC. And I remember laying there like, and I was like, do I want to just stop this? Like, maybe it gets a point, like, do you, do you stop? And I was like, no, I can't turn my back on this. I cannot, if I turn my back on this, like for me, it felt you know, it wasn't like I'd given up, but I thought if we all turn our back on this and and I said, I made that conscious decision then that I would still continue to keep going back and still keep doing what I could for people from, from that country. Yeah. 
So when you say guest of God, it seems that God is central to the issue of being a refugee. So so your research shows that spirituality seems to yeah, be... Yeah, this is something, and it's a new topic for me um, that I was quite interested in and how people's spiritual practices play a role because for a lot of people it's religion is, is, is really important to them. I mean, some people's cases... Is, is that because of where they come from? Yeah, I would say predominantly, but let's not discount sometimes people may have left some countries because of being maybe not practicing another religion that's not agreed by that government, wherever they might be coming from. But the spiritual question, and I think it's something, I think as a society, you know, we need to get more comfortable with the concept of spirituality that, you know, I've started using the word God again, you know, sometimes people get a little bit, oh, about that word <laughs> um and and i think you know whether you want to call incredible really how our world yeah. has banned us from using certain words yeah, yeah. but other words are like <laughs> hey if you don't say them you're in trouble exactly right? Why is there, you know, selective freedom? Yeah. Everyone should be free to say whatever, whatever they, they want. What they right? want, yeah. Um, so people still get a bit like, ooh, the God question, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> but, you know, in this part of the world, in the Middle East, you know, we can use this so freely. People, yeah, yeah, it's no, just yeah. like... The, the word is integrated yeah, in Yeah, it's every, so everyday yeah. conversation. Yeah. Um, but you asked me, what you know, what is the question around spirituality there for people? I saw it at times where really, really tragic things happened. And in 2010, when I was on Christmas Island, there was a really, really bad boat crash. And there was a boat that basically disintegrated into the sea. I think there was around 40 odd people that drowned and 50 that survived. And the Christmas Island community was really, really impacted by that, as you would what, witnessing that. And a lot of Christmas Islanders ran out, you know, down onto the rocks trying to save those people. Then I was asked to come to the detention centre and spend some time with some of the survivors. There were some young women that were there and, you know, I sort of had to see what, in that situation, what happens to people in the face of something really, really tragic. Like people have lost their family members um, in in a very, very graphic way. And the only way in which people could comprehend and make sense of what had happened was they said, this was an act of God. This is, I've got no other way to like deal with. That's how they dealt with it. They said, look, you know, God does things mysterious. He works in mysterious ways or whatnot, but this is, this was an act of God and it's in the hands of God right now. So when they say it's an act of God, Angrily, or because that's quite interesting, right? because mm. the, the, you, you could yeah. see across the two sides of spirituality, yeah. Yeah. some will say this is the yeah. Act how of God. dare you did this how to me? Yeah, yeah. You? you know, it's the it's the very very common Hollywood yeah, scene exactly. of like, why are you doing this to yeah. me, right? Yeah. Or, and, and while others in the East mostly will say this is an act of God. Yeah. And it's not I'm, like I'm just going to sit okay here and, it, yeah. and, you know, like, okay, this is the, what's happened. But, you know, I think that sometimes is how people find peace mm-hmm. in what has happened to them. Mm-hmm. And I saw that a lot. That is how people, you know, we always sort of say the expression, um, you know, God only gives us the challenges we can handle. Yeah. I've said that a lot to people in refugee situations mm-hmm. and I say it to myself <laughs> as a way of dealing with my own life. But, yeah, and I think that whole act of having something, you know, to putting like putting something in the hands of God, praying to God, you know, the power of prayer is really important to people. It's important to me as well and it's not a, you know, I think we also need to get comfortable with that, you know, that we can pray and ask God for help, yeah. And, and so when you're, when you're looking at it in your research, you're basically saying that, a country welcoming refugees could enable spirituality as one way of making it feel easier for them? For for them. Yeah, I would say um, it's like anything where when we sometimes have a lot taken away from us, sometimes we try and uh, find old routines (laughs) or not not old, routines we've known our whole life. That might be praying. You know, that gives people still a sense of stability, a sense of connection to something. Um, the fact that, you know, I've got that I can still do. I, you know, people need 
sometimes it's just, yeah, about like creating those routines that they might have had in their own countries and revisiting them and where they are now. Yeah. yeah. I think I think an understanding of that kind of spirituality in the West is actually quite uh, needed in general. I, I, I think the reality is because I've been raised in the East, did mo most of my studies and my work in the West, I actually find there are f some interesting gaps and, and you would get to understand them more if you even spoke the language. So, mm. you know, the, the Arabic language is so deeply integrated yeah. with spiritual terms. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. If you're in the UK and you said to someone, Hey, I'll see you at two o'clock. That's the figure of speech yeah. in, in the Middle East. It's I'll see you at two o'clock if inshallah, yeah. if God is willing, yeah. is literally one sentence. It's almost Absolutely. like part of the grammar. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. And so, and so when people start to understand that we are in so many parts of the world, you know, the Christian parts of Africa, the Taoist, Taoist, Buddhist, and so on, parts of Asia, the Hindu parts of Asia. This is so deeply integrated yeah. within society. Yeah. And then when people go to the West, I have to admit, you know, for many, many years and early in my career, I was like, am I allowed to, to pray in the office? Would this get people to be yeah, yeah, you know, against me? Yeah, like, yeah. you know, what is this? Yeah. Right. So, so, yeah. so that I highlighting that I think is a very yeah. valuable thing to do, honestly. Yeah. yeah. And it's about acceptance as well. Yeah, it's like, yeah absolutely. I yeah. Mean, I always jokingly say, look, you know, if you allow someone to, and now it's, you know, finally becoming a reality. If you allow someone to say, I identify as a woman or I'm gay or yeah, whatever, yeah. You might as well allow them to identify as spiritual. That's fine. Absolutely. It's not like they're hurting anyone. Yeah, yeah, right? so, yeah. you know, and I, I think, look, you know, I, I don't know. I think in the, we're living through interesting times and I see a lot more people leaning towards that that path at the moment you know and it is uh, tough times yeah, yeah and yeah. people have gone okay well i need something right now <laughs> I, I, I need something beyond beyond what have been counting on and you yeah. know being disappointed yeah really. it's yeah. it seems like you know yeah. uh, worshiping or believing in the government is not working for anyone <laughs> so anymore. i need something yeah, yeah. Let's, let's look yeah, for a bigger yeah. boss yeah tell me some of your most inspirational experiences so you you've you met what i will know in my heart are some of the most resilient, most resourceful people, yeah. even though they have very little. So, and they must have taught you some, a thing or two. Yeah, absolutely. I would say, oh, look, there's so many stories. It's it's almost difficult to to pull out of pull out one one that sort of makes me think a little bit, you know, of, about about meaning and and purpose and giving ourselves something. I remember there was one young Afghan guy who he was, yeah, maybe 16 and he was in detention on Christmas Island and he said to me, you know, Miss Michelle, every day we need to get up and do something we love doing. Like you have to get up every day and you ha there has to be one thing that you must love doing. It might be you love going to the gym or you might love this TV show or you might love learning English. And he said, for me, every day I get up and I just want to learn English and that brings me so much joy. Aww. And I was like, you know, this is what we're all talking about. You know, we're writing books about <laughs> And I was like, this kid's like, got it. Like, let's put this on like a speaker. Yeah. And, um, you know, he's like, you just have to have purpose. Like there has to be something every day you get up and you do and that, uh, that you love. It's really in its quite simple. The simplicity of those statements, I always think we're always the most like, you know, you really remember them. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, and once again, interestingly, those are so intuitive to some yeah. of the Eastern cultures. Yeah. You know, they're those proverbs, yeah, if you yeah, want, yeah. you know, just say them every day. Yeah. yeah. So I would say that. And I mean, I think, you know, I always love seeing people's stories, like once their families have come to Australia and, you know, they've built a life and people don't forget you. Yeah. You know, I still get text messages from people <laughs> like from 10 years ago. That's amazing. Saying, hi, I hope you're doing well. <laughs> like, you know, how did you yeah. even remember me? Uh, you know, and it's like that stuff is really, really important for people. Yeah, that's human connection. Yeah. I think yeah. that's human connection. That's really what it's all yep. about, right? Yeah, it's, yeah. It's incredible, really. Tell me about this, hope, solidarity and death. What happened to drive you to write this and why is it, why was there death? Well, yeah, I would say, well, let's start with the more positive. So the hope part has always been 
I have seen this many times with people who are supporting refugees or refugees supporting one another. For me, it was always about giving hope to people. Mm. I knew when I could no longer give hope to people that I wasn't to do this work anymore. And I think that is a critical part of it. And friends of mine that said, you know, there were just those dark times in detention where you, again, like I was saying with the Australian, teaching Australian studies, where they said the hope was just enough to, you know, I was at that crossroad where I was like, I just don't want to do this anymore. I don't want to do any of this anymore. Or do I try and push on? And they said, you know, when you just, some of the times those conversations were enough, Michelle, that just gave me that little bit of hope to keep going. So I think that's, you know, something that we're, and we're always doing that with one another, you know, when people say like, you know, I hope this will get better for you. And they generally mean it. Like sometimes we have to hear that from someone else just to do life. (laughs) Um, The solidarity part, I saw a lot of that happening on Christmas Island. The local community standing in solidarity with asylum seekers. You know, there were times when boats were being turned back and being stopped. The people of Christmas Island said, um, you know, we're standing in solidarity. We know what it's been like to be on the outer of Australian society. Mm. We're in solidarity. And I think it speaks to a bigger, bigger picture as well. We all do need to stand in solidarity with refugees because one day we could be in this situation. We just don't know. And then the final part on death. Well, as I said, you know, I witnessed a really bad boat crash. You know, I witnessed people and their stories of uh, losing family members at sea. As I said, there were deaths in detention as well. Uh, And I never want that to be the option for people in their, their plights. So, yeah, so it brings together all of those themes. Is the first research of its time that uh, tracked the number of boat arrivals. They actually started in the early 90s, where lesser known were Chinese people that were coming to, to Christmas Island. And it's, yeah, it tracks over 20 years of research and interviews with local people and how they responded. And I felt that by, you know, understanding how local people and their interactions with refugees were that it would tell us a bigger story about you know what it means to be human and how do we connect with with people and yeah yeah I haven't had that chance to read it I apologize but I definitely will I have to say I'm very curious about the cover though one thing I have always been puzzled about is like this is a boat in the middle of the ocean probably after many many days mm-hmm. in that con- in those conditions and then yet someone had the intention and the idea and the time and the phone and the battery <laughs> to take a picture. Like, yeah, well... And, and it's a very good picture. I don't yeah, know if well, for, one, for yeah, yeah, well, that is by another friend of mine, uh, Barat Ali Batua, who is an incredible photographer. He actually was a photographer back in Afghanistan. He uh, took photos that were... Uh, he documented a lot of unfortunate situations, of sexual exploitation of boys in Afghanistan with this whole dancing boys, Bachabazi, and it was um, published in the Washington Post and whatnot. And obviously then, of course, putting attention on that he had to flee for his life and over time when Batua tried to get to Australia he was in Indonesia he started documenting his journey as a photographer Um, he wanted to document the realities of of seeking asylum and and his journey so what happened was on his way to Christmas Island he was still taking photos and video footage and the boat became distressed. It started sinking. The boat was abandoned off, a, you know, a small island in Indonesia and they managed to wade to shore. And he still took photographs of what was – he said, um, you know, I was, I was documenting my death. And oh, wow. Yeah. And then – with that footage, even, you know, he was then detained by Indonesian police. They searched everything. Somehow his backpack that was had the camera in it, somehow they missed that and he still managed to, you know, they were confiscating things and there's a lot of corruption going on in these prisons. Somehow that bag was just overlooked and he still managed to take it with him and even when he escaped. And then the camera was completely damaged. It was water damaged. And when they took it to a technician in, in Jakarta, 
But the memory card was still intact and still had all the video footage of everything. Wow. Um, so his um, his documentary is definitely worth watching. It's called Batua, A Refugee Journey, um, and it shows a lot of that footage. And, and Batua is someone who's done an incredible job. He's won, you know, Australian Walkley Awards for photojournalism. He's given TED Talks now on his work. He's a, a prominent refugee advocate for, for his people, for Hazara people of Afghanistan. So we became friends through a whole you know, way of connecting over the years. And yeah, that's the photograph. That's the front cover of the, of the book. It fascinates me once again that, you know, he, he contributes so much and then has to get on a boat to find his freedom. Yeah, absolutely. So, some, something in our world is wrong. Yeah, well, he ended up going back to Indonesia, which I actually ended up meeting him in, in Jakarta at the time. And then and then Australia and UNHCR granted him refugee status and he, he came to Australia. But definitely watch the documentary. It's, it's brilliant, yeah. I want to close with a question that is always dear to my heart. So these are some of the most miserable places on earth, right? Conditions are difficult. You're deprived of your freedom. Sometimes you don't speak the language. The, you know, as you said, you know, people can get to the point of depression and suicide. Did you find happiness in those places at all? Happiness of the people or happiness? Of the, of, the, of the refugees. Yeah, always. I mean, people are always, you know, that we've got to be grateful for where we're at. You know, it's, you know, the, we often talk about, you know, the gratitude question and whatnot. And so there was always that level of I need to be grateful for what I have, not what I don't have. And, you know, I saw this recently, a really dear friend who is, um, has been evacuated from Afghanistan and, and is, is in another country waiting to be processed to, to go on to the West. And he, without giving too much information to protect, you know, his security situation, he was imprisoned by the Taliban for 40 days, 40 nights. And, you know, it was like during that time, it was like, you know, he still, was like, I still need to be grateful for what I have, you know, that my wife and my son are on the other side of this. And he prayed so much. We all like were praying for, for his release. And it's always that question, like it's, it's, it's what I do have, not what I don't have, which I think I've seen that countless times with refugees. Incredible, really. Incredible to be in the harshest of circumstances and then manage to be able to find what you have. Because believe it or not, if you look down, as I, as I always say, mm. there is someone who doesn't Absolutely. even have that. And in comparison, if you're in a refugee camp, in comparison to being detained by the Taliban for 40 days, yep. that's a step up, interestingly. So, you know, in a, in a very interesting way, I'll ask every single one listening, even uh, if life is tough, because I know for many of us, life would, you know, will always throw something difficult our way. Yeah, it can be so much worse. So mm. we might as well be grateful for where we are instead of just complaining about what we don't have. I think that's truly absolutely. The secret, if you ask yeah, me. I think it is. It's it's a way forward, and and you know, and that also my experiences of seeing this with people. That's what you know, and that's what's brought me a lot of happiness and joy is you know understanding that and and being privileged to it. Yeah. You're wonderful, Michelle. I thank you very much. You signed the book for me saying, Dear Mo, thank you for supporting this book. And I do support not just the book, I think the cause. I think we, in our busy lives, can get preoccupied with, yeah, what matters to mm -hmm. our own life. I think a view of what other lives are all about and what they're struggling with and what they're going through is not only uh, a reminder for how blessed and privileged we are, but it's also perhaps a call to action to try and contribute and make a difference to those that, uh, that are not as privileged, that are not as blessed. I thank you so much for writing this. I thank you for coming to join me. My pleasure. Thank you for speaking with me. And uh, for all of you listening, I, uh, as I said, have wanted to bring this to your attention for quite a long time. You may not have the ability to do anything to change it, but here in the Middle East, we always say that if you see something wrong with the world, attempt to change it first with your actions. If you can't, then with your words. And then if you cannot, then at least change it in your heart. There are millions and millions and millions of people who are in dire situations as refugees and asylum seekers around the world. 
white, black, Muslim, Christian, Indian, Malay, Afghani, doesn't really matter. They're all humans just like you and I. Sometimes I say they are even more human than you and I. So I beg you to, if you can change and help with your actions, then do. If you cannot, then at least speak about it positively and try to make a difference. Uh, and if not, at least have them in your heart and your prayers. And while you're at it, find your gratitude because most of us have not contributed much to not being born in one of those countries where that ends up being our situation. I leave you to reflect about that. You might want to slow down a little bit and spend a little bit of time in your week to think about how blessed we all are. And uh, as always, I'm very, very grateful for the fact that you give me the opportunity to have those incredible conversations with incredible people who bring our attention to incredibly important topics. It's all at the result of just one hour, a little more than an hour uh, every week where we can slow down because it doesn't really matter how busy you are this week. You really, I know it in my heart, need a little bit of time to slow down. I love you all for listening and I will see you next time.